Well, we saw a heavy sell-off of bonds globally last year, of course, as inflation picked up alongside those rising interest rates from those pesky central banks. This year, we're seeing bonds becoming increasingly popular. Well, they are a buying opportunity after all. So what's traditionally been a bit of a sleepy asset class has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride. So today on the weekend edition, are bonds back in a big way? And if so, just how differently are we looking at them now? A bit more volatile? A bit more opportunity? Or will they just slip back into being that safe choice? Today, let's talk bonds. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. And a quick reminder, the Weekend Edition is different to our Daily Markets podcast because we talk to people outside the bank fairly often. So it's uh, not necessarily the views of NAB or the views that NAB holds, but we are here for open discussion, so a broader dialogue. It also means this is not investment advice, it's for information purposes only. Today specifically, information on the bond market. Now, in the past, let's be honest, bonds were a bit boring. They were the choice for your super fund as you got older and wanted to de-risk as your retirement day got closer. For investors, they were the safe choice, the safe haven when other asset classes got a bit choppy. But things globally for bonds have been a bit more exciting lately, not necessarily in a good way. Remember how during the brief Liz Truss era in the UK, the Bank of England stepped in to steady the ship because pension funds were facing imminent losses as the value of their bond holdings rapidly decreased. Then we had bank collapses in the US, which were largely down to the same thing, bonds not holding their value on the balance sheet. Bonds became a bit risky. Now, With higher yields around the world, they are looking a lot more interesting and perhaps the land of opportunity. So I am strangely excited to be able to talk exclusively about bonds today on the weekend edition. Katie Dean is the head of FIC, Fixed Income Currency and Cash at Australian Super, obviously the largest super fund in Australia, 258 billion in members' assets last year. So, Katie, what's the attitude to bonds now, do you think? Still the safe choice or a bit risky or the big opportunity waiting to be explored? Oh, hi, Phil. So, um, first of all, thanks for having us today. And also thanks for um, reinstating bonds where they should be, which is the exciting asset class. Exciting, yeah. (laughs) Exciting, yeah. I think, um, you know, bonds have copped a bit of a bad rap, haven't they, over the last 10 years or so, because their their income and their yield is, um, well, not so much their income, but their yield has certainly been declining. However, I think, you know, what um, investors uh, have always remembered is that bond yields in the end are one of the key drivers of investment returns across the asset classes. So whilst it looks maybe a little bit boring on the outside, they are actually a very exciting asset class. Right. Um, and and are, your mem- are your members seeing it the same way? Because they're, they're the ones who will have said, oh, I want to take the safe choice. Let's go with bonds. And mm-hmm. they'll have a big question mark over that now. Yeah, well, no. And that's that's the key question, isn't it? So are, def- are bonds still offering that defensive uh, strategy in the that defensive quality that, to be honest, um, they had held, um, well, for most of their lifetime. There's nothing like an historic drawdown in an asset class to really make you question its defensive nature. Um, what we see, though, is that, look, let's talk about the the outlook for bonds more broadly in terms of an investment opportunity. Um, you know, the reason why bonds had that historic drawdown last year was it was, you know, there were two key drivers there, wasn't there? First was the fact that we had been at record low yields, like, you know, a good proportion of bonds were trading at zero or even under zero percent. So the starting your starting point for capital for um, income wasn't great. And then, of course, uh, the, the worst outcome that you can have for a bond return is higher inflation and rapidly rising inflation. So, 
um, that of course led to very sharp rises in yields, eroded the capital value of the bond, and led to that um, you know that atrocious year for bonds last year. Um, what we now see though is that of course that creates opportunities. So bond yields are now you know the highest, certainly the highest that I've actually seen um, since I've been at the fund, um, and uh, you know at, in some cases you know back around sort of pre-GFC or just after post-GFC highs. Um, and also we've got inflation um, in a lot of economies, not all, all economies, but in a lot of economies peaking and actually starting to decelerate quite quickly. So the combination of, of falling inflation and higher starting points normally sets up a, a pretty good landscape for the outlook for fixed interest. And, and that's what we're seeing across the the, the behaviour of the broader investment community. So fixed interest having been the most unloved asset class for quite a long period of time by return-seeking investors is um, now starting to, to get a little bit interesting and, and starting to make its way into portfolios for those investors that are looking for active um, returns. Yeah, so it's becoming a growth opportunity rather than just being the defensive player. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, the way this is all turning out? Because equities, of course, have had a really good round, particularly, you know, in the US, the Nasdaq is still 30% up year to date. But there's a question mark about whether that, you know, whether they've plateaued. I mean, are bonds becoming a better bet than equity? I know you can't answer this question directly, but, you know, more broadly, it's a question mark, isn't it? Where, where do you go for growth now? Do you put it in equities? Bit a bit risky now? Have they peaked? Or do you go for bonds where you are seeing those high yields? Yeah, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about bonds. I'm not um, going to give you any direct financial advice, Phil. No. When you think about, um, yeah, of course. But um, in terms of when you think about the outlook for asset classes, so um, as I said, the the outlook for the actual return that you might get from bonds, if you are a believer in central banks return, doing the work that's required to return inflation back to target, then um, certainly, um, you know, you, you're looking at an a return that's positive, not just in nominal terms, Phil, but also in real terms. And that's the first time we've probably been able to say that for a little while in terms of bonds. In terms of equities, you know, it's um, it, it's a, a classic sort of outlook in terms of do you think that growth, is, if central banks have done enough to, to slow inflation, is that because they've done enough to slow growth? Um, and if you are concerned that um, you know, the, the policy tightening that we've seen is going to start to, to dent earnings by more than expected, is going to start to dent growth by more than expected, then you'd be perhaps a little bit concerned about the, the near or at least the, yeah, certainly the short-term outlook for equities. Right. So I think you've already said those people who are going for growth, who are looking for an expansionary portfolio, they will be seeing more more bonds, mm. a, a higher proportion of bonds sitting in that mix now. Uh, look, in a simple word, uh, Phil, yes. So, when we think back to that pre or that post COVID period where interest rates um, were cut, you know, basically to zero all around the world, funds such as ourselves held as, as little bonds as we could at that time. Um, over the last couple of years, as bond yields have started to back up, the attractiveness of fixed income as an asset class has absolutely increased. And um, what we've seen is an increase in allocation towards this asset class. I would also say that it's now starting to. Um, provide those defensive qualities that it was traditionally known as. We've got higher yields, of course, which gives, as I said at the start, gives that opportunity for pretty strong capital gains in the event of a downturn because policymakers actually now have a, a set of interest rates that they can cut <laughs> and policy that they can, um, uh, you know, ease pretty substantially. And so what we've seen is that both um, the traditional sort of balanced plans as well as the more um, defensively oriented 
um, investment options have all started to increase their allocation, in some cases move overweight fixed income. And, and that would be the first time in a long time that we've seen that change in asset allocation. That would also mean there's going to be less of a difference between the two, between you know a more defensive play and someone going for growth. That differential is going to be a lot weaker, isn't it? No, not necessarily, because the way that we, you know, the way that you structure your options or investment options is that a um, uh, a balanced option will still have a pretty decent exposure to growth assets. If you think about the more traditional um, portfolio construction of a seventy thirty portfolio as your, as your median, um, so seventy percent growth, thirty percent defensive. Um, a defensive option is much more likely to be the other way around in terms of equity exposure, if indeed it did have um, equity exposure. Now, to make uh, bonds even more exciting and uh, the picture as if it's not exciting enough, as we've already explore- explored, um, there's the, the international dimension, obviously, which is making it all more complicated. So you've got offices in New York and London now, so you're obviously getting closer to the ground in terms of your overseas investments. So mm. uh, are overseas government bonds, and not just US treasuries, but is the are they becoming far more important uh, as part of the mix now? Yeah, so um, maybe a bit of background in terms of how we do invest. For quite some time, um, our fund has, from a fixed income perspective, run a, a a split uh, benchmark in terms of really uh, splitting our um, benchmark exposure between Australian, the Australian government bond market and the the global ag, as we refer to it, our global um, aggregate benchmark. The reason we've done that is, um, you know, that was done quite some time ago and it was done on the um, expectation that the investment um, opportunities and the ability to really drive it our returns, the best returns for our members required a diversified portfolio. We didn't want all of our um, investments just in Australian government bonds. So we've run a, uh, a split benchmark for quite some time. We do have the ability to move over and underweight um, uh, different uh, regions, but I would say that that's very much a tactical decision based on the relative outlook for those economies, not a structural decision. Right, so you will have been making a lot more of those tactical decisions lately then, I should imagine. Oh, absolutely. And so that's, those tactical decisions are made on the basis of our expectation on, on policy rates, on the economy and on the inflation cycle. So um, I guess when you have a look around the world, um, Phil, uh, <laughs> the bonds that you want to own are the, the bonds of those economies that perhaps are most advanced in their tightening cycle and most advanced in their ability to get inflation back to target. Now, um, if I do a bit of a scan, I don't know if I would put the US in the at the top of that list. Yes, they've done the most tightening, but they've also arguably um, got the tightest labour market and the least evidence outside, of course, of inflation decelerating. But outside of that, they've probably got the least evidence that um, the broader economy is slowing to those sorts of levels that are consistent with a sustainable um, inflation path back to central. Right, so that's interesting. So you think they've still got a road to go, Dan? Well, the latest data would tell you that, wouldn't it, Phil? So I think the GDP now, Atlanta Fed GDP now is what, running at 4 or 5%, 5%. We've seen an economy that just won't quit in the US. You know, there was certainly, um, you know, there was some expectation of a, a bit of a growth rebound in Q3 led by inventories, but an inventory cycle, but what we're seeing is a, it's it's a little bit broader than that. The economy is still growing very strongly. Households um, are really proving to be very resilient, partly, of course, because we're all locked into those 30-year 
um, uh, fixed rate mortgages. So they're not even feeling to some large extent that policy tightening that's come through the system. So um, if you look at an economy that's still growing above potential with a starting point for its unemployment rate of well below Nehru, um, I think it's a little bit questionable around whether or not that deceleration in inflation that we're seeing will get down, will allow inflation to get back down towards that 2% no. target. No soft landing, Katie. It's a soft landing. Come on, get with the program. <laughs> I mean, they are somehow managing to get inflation back into control without pushing up interest rates uh, and seeing the economy bounce back with without any further action. Are they, Phil? Are they, Phil? That narrow path is getting wider. That's what <laughs> I, I hear a lot of that. Um, mm, yeah. Certainly, you're seeing that in economist forecasts, from what I can see, that that expectation of a soft landing has moved. It's progressively increased, hasn't it? It's moved from a 40% to a 50 to a 60 to a 70% probability in, in some cases. Um, history is a good warning here. It's very difficult to land um, to land a, a miraculous disinflation, Phil. So we'll see. I mean, this, this is an economy that has certainly endured a pretty significant supply shock, and it's also an economy that's incredibly dynamic, isn't it? So you know, wages are set on sort of a six-month or a one-year time horizon, not the sort of three- and four-year time horizon that we see in Australia. So maybe they are able to set expectations that quickly um, such that we do get that soft landing. But, gee, if they pull it off, it'll be it'll be something else, won't One it? for the history books. Absolutely, we're rewriting mm. a lot of textbooks. So so what about closer to home then? What's, what's your call on the RBA? Are we there yet? And how long do they hold? Because, you know, markets seem to be seeing cuts coming faster than economists do. Uh, but often, you know, markets are often better than economists at this sort of stuff. So, uh, so where are we heading in Australia? Yeah, I mean, markets have had the edge on the the, um, the economists over the last, well, maybe over the last couple of months. I'm not sure they, the markets have had over the cycle. Um, look, it's a bit of a tough one, isn't it? Uh, I thought the minutes this week were pretty illuminating in terms of how the RBA characterised that balance of risks, and that was very much, again, around the fact that, um, you know, the risks of inflation not returning to, to target were pretty asymmetric in terms of much more worried about inflation staying too high than, than undershooting um, the target. I guess what we have been perhaps a little bit surprised by, and, you know, this, this is coming through the earnings season as well, isn't it, is the ongoing resilience of the, the household sector to the rate rises that we've seen to date. Now, it's still probably early days, but certainly the data and and the reporting season from the banks is telling you that the household sector is actually still in pretty good shape because at the end of the day, it's it's the labour market that drives everything. So, look, I think it's um, it's a bit of a close call. I think the market's got, what, it's got about a 25% chance of a, a further tightening being required. I would think that the global experience would tell you that the odds should probably be a little bit higher than that. Um, and then the extent to which the RBA can cut will really be determined by, um, you know, this, this path of inflation. And if we think that wages growth, for example, is stickier on the way up, it's potentially a bit stickier on the way down, Phil, too. So the ability of the RBA to provide, um, you know, meaningful easing um, quickly will be, I think, um, challenging. So back to bonds very briefly. Corporate bonds, mm. either in Australia or overseas, I mean, are they offering yeah. enough of a premium for the level of risk? Given, you know, we've got this high yield on government bonds, why would you venture further into the corporate space? Yeah, look, that's a good question and one we ask ourselves a lot, right? Because 
the outright yield on, on um, some parts of the corporate bond market are looking very attractive when you think about like just your potential for absolute return and the potential cushion that you've got there um, from a spread widening. So when you look at absolute value, gee, they look they look great value, but when you look at it from a spread perspective, you start to get a little bit worried. So the spread of some of these um, parts of the bond market, so IG credit um, all the way up to high yield, is very expensive, like at, at very tight levels, um, obviously underpinned by that soft landing narrative. So you've really got to believe, you've got to be a believer in the soft landing narrative to really be a big believer that those spreads aren't going to, to widen significantly. Now, having said that, the outright level of yield is starting to get to that point where you're probably potentially fairly well compensated. And when we think about new issues, they're being written at pretty, you know, they're being written at the current level of interest rates, aren't they, Phil? So you'd think they'd be pretty decent credit quality, you would hope. But right. um, but yeah, you're not a big much, supporter of the you're uh, not a big supporter of the soft landing. That's I mean you made that. Well, clear. I think yeah. So it really depends on your cycle view, doesn't it? But if you're a believer in the soft landing, then gobble up that credit. But if you are uh, a little bit skeptical, you might get some better opportunities along the way. Right. So Katie, as we come out of all of this, you know, looking a, a couple of years ahead. How do we see, you know, we've been through the pandemic, we've been through this bout of inflation, we've seen bond prices falling and then yields shooting up and they become this uh, this buying opportunity. I mean, do, where, do, where do they go back to? Do, I mean, we will obviously view them more with more of an air of caution than before, but also perhaps more of a, an opportunity than we perhaps have thought of in the past. Yeah, look, it's a great question, isn't it? Um, and there's so much at play in that question. So I think at the heart of it, what you're asking is where is sort of that new, that neutral level of, of bond yields and is that going to be uh, attractive from a balanced um, balanced portfolio perspective? And I'm asking, will we still be excited about bonds in two years' time, Katie? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> well, I'm always excited about bonds, so I'm probably the wrong person to answer, uh, answer that question. But I think, you know, um, so why are we excited now? It's because they're offering a pretty decent yield and they've also got an opportunity to offer some pretty hefty capital gains if the economy and inflation continues to slow. So I think what we can probably um, take a view on is that there's look, there's a lot of um, – there's just the potential for economies to be a little bit more cyclical, I would say, over the next uh, over the next five to ten years. Now, why do I say that? Um, it's because we've got a combination of uh, more, well, first of all, we've got a starting point where policy is already very tight and potentially is not quite tight enough. Um, we've also got a, a range of factors that are sort of, uh, you know, you'd almost call them external shocks, wouldn't you? So you've got AI, you've got the energy transition, you've got geopolitics continuing to dominate um, supply chains and, and certainly driving you know, resurgence of industry policy, all of those sorts of structural issues tend to result in more cyclical and less smooth economies um, because they all tend to exert, you know, bits and pieces of pressure on both inflation and growth. And so what that suggests is that we might see less of a straight line in bonds and more cycles, and that presents a great 
opportunity and a great level of excitement for bond investors. <laughs> so we don't like we don't like straight lines. What we like is a, a little bit of volatility. Absolutely, we like wavy lines. Good to talk, Katie. Uh, mm. We'll get you on again soon. I hope. Uh, thanks for joining us on the on the weekend edition. Have a great weekend yourself. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. There we are. Bonds back and not boring. That's it for today. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget we are here each weekday as well, the weekday edition of The Morning Call, where we keep track of the local and global markets and the timely information on what's driving them. I'll see you on Monday morning for that or back next weekend for another one of these. Thanks for listening. The Weekend Edition. 